Thank you all for being here, and I hope you have all had a chance to be able to grab something to drink. We're a little bit late in starting, but um, it's a very wonderful thing to see the church full of people and to commune with all of you again. That was a very, um, it's always, just feels good, you know, and uh, when those holes are there in the the church, um, you just kind of, um, well, we wish that we would have a nice full body of Christ, and um, as we approach the coming of our Lord, I think it's um, all the more important. Um, <clears throat> we are going to um, launch into Second John or First John chapter 2, and hopefully we'll be able to get through all that uh, today. Um, such a, a beautiful text and so powerful in the way in which it speaks to us and to our Christian life. This relationship between faith and works is a tough one um, because, you know, the minute that you start saying that we as Christians should be living a Christian life, the first thought is that you have to live the life to become a Christian, and what we are saying is, is that the life is what follows upon becoming a Christian. That is, we become a Christian by faith in Christ but we should never assume that there will not be something that will arise or happen in us and to us as a result of of, uh, Christ, what he has done for us, a justification that has taken place in us. Um, Let's start with a prayer. O Lord and Savior, we desire as Christians not to sin, We desire in our spirit that we would be whole and perfect in your sight. But we have been given this flesh that we cannot redeem, a flesh that can never be perfected, a flesh that has to be put to death. And yet, in and through and by means of this redeemed flesh, you intend to take it to heaven and to glorify it. And so, therefore, we pray that we, too, may bring glory to our own flesh by the way in which we believe and trust in you. But help us also to do those good works which might follow the works that come as a result of being a Christian, that we would love you and love your commands. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Last night, um, we... um, we watched this movie called Babette's Feast. My mom has been uh, attending and visiting. And um, since it is uh, made in Denmark, which was only just a few miles from Norway, we had to satisfy her Scandinavian desires and show her a little bit of stuff, you know, that, that they speak like that. They sing their language. Anyway, um, how many of you have seen Babette's Be- Feast before? How many of you have not seen Babette's Feast? Oh, wow. Well, it's, a, it's kind of a classic. Um, it, uh, it's a story about, uh, really about two uh, beautiful young women. This was actually the actors and actresses that came from the Royal Copenhagen uh, Opera. Uh, they, uh, it's, they, they're, they're these two daughters of a Lutheran pastor. And he's a... He's what we would probably describe as a, as a pietist. And this pietistic time in Europe was probably in great part a reaction to, to uh, rationalism, 
but also to the excesses of the cultures, where, in other words, wealthy people uh, were people who got to indulge in luxury, and very often associated with their this life of luxury was also a life of decadence. And so the common people came to see wealth and any shows or ostentatious show of wealth as something which was associated with decadence and led to that. So that if you desired something that was of, of great quality, if you liked a really good quality wine, if you were a person that liked really good food, that this was a part of that life of decadence. And so these, these two pastor's daughters um, are really, well, their father is not too anxious for them to be married because, as he says, they're his right and his left hand. Uh, there are these beautiful girls. All these young men are coming to church because they want to get catch a glimpse of these beautiful girls. Uh, one of them, of course, is, is even more stunningly beautiful. The other one has an incredible voice. And then two men come into their lives. The first is a man who is and was a very rebellious young Swedish officer in the service of the Swedish king. And he has gotten into trouble because he's kind of himself kind of lived a rather decadent life. And so he's sent to stay with his very austere aunt in Jutland, you know, Jutland, you know, that, that peninsula that sticks up there uh, into, the, uh, into the Baltic Sea. And uh, it's, it's a very severe environment. It's very stark. It's very underpopulated. And, uh, and he is sent to live with his aunt, who then brings him and, uh, where he goes out riding, and he sees this beautiful girl. And he decides that he wants to maybe have a chance to maybe meet and then maybe even marry her. He sees himself you know, kind of as a reaction to this decadent life. He all of a sudden sees himself as a person who wants to really kind of get his act together, and he wants to become like these people where they have this kind of this fortitude of self-denial. So he goes and he sits at the table and he begins to listen to this language and he begins to listen to what they're saying, but he just finds himself to be so incapable of this extreme piety. He just, he just can't deny that whole world. He just can't be the perfect person. He can't be so controlled in his emotions. And so he ends up deciding that, that life would be far too severe to live in that kind of world. And he goes back and decides that to become this, this incredibly, um, I guess you might say, successful man. Eventually, he eventually becomes one of the most successful generals in the army, becomes very famous. And the other girl, there's a, uh, there's a French opera singer who decides that he wants to have some time alone by himself, and he goes out to the peninsula of Jutland, and there he is, he starts to fall into melancholy, and he hears the singing that's going on in church. And he goes in, and here is this diva, he says, who is singing there, and there, of course, they're singing all these Lutheran hymns, you know. And, of course, that is why I couldn't get up from the TV and go work on my sermon. <laughs> I hope it didn't show. Um, so, uh, so he sees this girl and he knows that she has a voice that's, that would just absolutely hold Paris at its feet, at her feet. And so he asks if he can give her lessons. And of course, the father says, all right, well, she said that she would accept lessons. And then there he is. He starts off with the scales and such that they do. And pretty soon, he's got her singing 
love songs. And if you've ever been hanging around pietists, they don't like love songs. You know, amore, looking into each other's eyes, holding each other. Love will bring us together and all this kind of stuff. And she's singing this stuff. And outside, her father with the other sister, they're holding hands in prayer because this girl is on her way towards decadence. Well, she realizes that she cannot embrace that world or that world will not be sufficient for her. So she refuses him from that point onward and he goes back and he goes back to his world in France and that seems to be the end of it. So it's a number of years later and all of a sudden a woman shows up at their door. Her name is Babette. She's a French woman. And she tells them that there's been this persecution in France. Many of the people in France were killed as a result of this revolution. And she is fleeing for her life. And she receives, she brings a letter from this French singer who introduces her to this, these two girls. And she decides, tells them that she will work for free. Well, indeed she does. She becomes their maid. She works for free. She, um, but all the while that she's working for them, they begin to, their, their money increases. They, uh, she takes this bland food that they've been serving and she makes it just a little bit nicer so that everybody is just warmed by who this person is. And she says to the, to the grocer, she says, the only contact that she has with France is that there's a friend that she has in France who simply... Uh, always buys her a lottery ticket. Well, you can begin to guess what happened. She receives word that she has won the French lottery. And they're convinced that now she's going to go back to France, that she's going to go back to that rich lifestyle that she came from. And she says to them, well, she says, I would like to make for you a dinner. And they, oh, no, no, we just get together for you know, tea or coffee, and then we have a, maybe a dessert, and that would be the extent of it. We've never done more than that. And she says, no, please, I, I want to do this dinner for you. And they said, well, yeah, okay. And she says, I'm actually going to do a French dinner for you. Well, so they're kind of resistive, you know, it might be worldly. And so she sends away, and her nephew, who works for the shipping company, brings all this stuff, and she unloads it and brings it in and now she begins to now make this meal. All these people gather together, but their concern is this, that they realize that she's been serving wine. And they're convinced that they are now going to be sinning if they are drinking wine and eating really good quality food, something more than dried fish. <laughs> so, um, so they all vow that they are not going to enjoy it no matter what. <laughs> and that they, they, they will simply not say anything nice about it and they will, just, they will just eat the food and that's it. Well, the general happens to come back at this time and he ends up receiving an invitation because his aunt is one of these severe pietists. And he comes and he sits down at the table and this food begins to be served and the general, of course, having been in the world, having actually been in France, begins to start interpreting. Do you realize this wine that you're drinking? Do you understand that this is an amontillado, whatever it is? And he starts, and they're just going, yeah, okay, yeah, it's going to snow. Yeah, that's, you know. 
and they keep, you know, they, they refuse to accept this, right? Well, then, as time begins, uh, as go, goes on in the meal, the food just keeps getting better and better, and the wine, and the different types of wine, and pretty soon, these pietists, who actually have been kind of fighting each other and you know nasty and remembering their the sins that have taken place in their lifetime and they're arguing between themselves and bickering and such they begin to now in this context of this meal they begin to start loving each other saying wonderful things to each other caring about each other now you think maybe it was the wine that did it but um, but uh, the general begins to explain he says when I was in France there was a a, a cafe uh, called Cafe Anglaise. And there was a woman chef that was there. And they say that she was the greatest chef in the whole world. And when she made a certain meal, that meal, when it, people came together, they couldn't discern the difference between the physical and the spiritual. And that's all of a sudden, when you were eating this meal, that there was this love that began to take place between the ones that were there. And of course, they find out very subtly that Babette was that cook, that, that chef. Well, the meal kind of comes to its end, and they're all leaving, and they're coming out, and they're singing hymns, and they're holding hands, and they're loving each other, and then they speak to Babette, what happened? They, she said, now you're going to be going back to France. And she said, no, I have nothing to go back for, but I spent everything on this meal. Everything. You, 10,000 francs? You won the lottery, and it, that's what it costs for this meal and for this food. And then you begin to realize that what they're saying something more important because at that table they had had 11, now they had 12 that were sitting around that table. That Babette is their Christ figure who comes lowly and humbly and here she has these incredible powers of being able to make meals like this but she lives among them as a humble servant and when she becomes this wealthy woman not only does she spend everything that she has on them, but the magic that she brings to the meal is that they start loving each other in a way that they did not love each other before. And this is a really, what I like about this, what I love about this, is that this is exactly what Christ has come to do. He is the one who has brought the meal to us. And when we partake of this body and this blood of Christ in this wonderful sacred meal that he has given everything, including his life, to give us, that now the forgiveness and the love that he has given to us ends up becoming the very thing which infects us with a love for each other. And this is now it's a very long introduction <laughs> to this text because that is exactly what it is that John is driving at, okay? All right. We all love stories. Now, you got Bibles? Everybody runs for a Bible. Chapter 2. Are you ready? First John chapter 2. 
I'm just going to back up to verse 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. Now, I want to just stop there for a second. The word here, obey his commands, tereo, is if we hold on to. It's, a, it's a, like with a hand that grasps something. And these commands, these commands of Jesus are what, is it, what the text says in the Greek are his entole. Now, Jesus will say to his disciples, my command is this, love one another even as I have loved you. Right? Now, we think a lot of times when this is, we obey his commands, everybody immediately goes to kind of the Ten Commandments, and we start thinking, well, that means that we, that we are, are honoring parents, that we are um, you know, protecting our neighbor's body, defending him, not uh, slandering people, and so on. And in a certain kind of sense, that's true. Because Jesus, when he, makes, when he summarizes the commandments, he says what? The greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So in other words, in the sense, the, the commandments are summed up. But when, like electricity, when we grab onto that forgiveness that Christ has given to us, we then turn and we offer that same kind of forgiveness to our neighbor. So this and this are connected. When this gets disconnected, so also does this. So John is saying that here now we have this atoning sacrifice for our sins, and when we grab on to that forgiveness, then there will be this grabbing on here of his command that we love one another. So we, we hang on to that love, no matter what, no matter whether the person gives it back to us. We continue to love them even if they don't give it back to us, right? So this and this. My, my, my dad worked for an electric company, and um, I suppose every electrician can tell you this, but in the, in the electric company, when some of these linemen were out there and they would, maybe there would be a hole in their rubber glove or something, and they would grab onto this, and then when they started to get electrocuted, what happens is they say, you can't let your hand go. That it's just, you can't release it. So the very thing that's causing you this electrical impulse actually prevents you from being able to open up your hand and, go and be free from it. Um, in a sense, that's what happens in the positive way with God's word. When God forgives us, we forgive our neighbor. And so, in a sense, when we look at whether or not people are loving their neighbor, it is a sign that faith is also grabbing on to God in His grace. So these two go together. Faith and works are always, they're different from each other, but they are related. So he says, if anyone obeys his word, holds fast to his words, he obeys, and everybody's thinking works, 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 obeys is really faith. God's love is truly made complete. It's brought to its fulfillment in him. And this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him 
now must walk, he says, as Jesus did. Peripateo, it's a, it's, a, it's a different kind of must walk as he does. Um, there used to be a school called the Peripatetic School, and it was that when you, when you went with a teacher, it was a teacher who, instead of sitting in a classroom, uh, he walked and he talked and he discoursed on things and he would point to plants and he would teach them about plants and they would teach them about human behavior and then he would teach them about the sun and the moon and the stars and all the astronomy and so on and so forth. It was a, a walking instruction, peripateo, to walk with him. So when we walk with Christ, it means that in, in a lot of respects that, we, that as he walked and taught, as he was with people as he dealt with Pharisees and so on, what we are doing is we are, we are walking with him and learning from him about all these things as he goes through life. So it's not just a, he walks with me and he talks with me, he tells me I am his own. You've heard that hint. No, not, no, not in my church you haven't, but uh, uh, okay. Dear friends, he says, I am not writing to you a new command, uh, agapetoi, he says, not just friends, this is agapetoi, these are people that he loves. Agape, you know, you've heard that one too, usually maybe for wedding sermons or something like that, the different kinds of love, but agape love is for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten, that whoever believes in him will not perish. He loves the world. doesn't mean that he looks at us like some love-struck uh, man with his fiancée. It it's not that kind of attraction love. Love, this is a love that actually brings its own view of the person contrary to what that person even is. If you have, nowadays, you know, they say that, that, um, that there are fewer and fewer children with Down syndrome that are being born today. Why? Because they're discovering, they can discover in utero that the child is going to be Down syndrome and people are aborting their children. When that child is born, a child can be loved by their parent, not always for what's in the child or as the child appears, but rather how a parent's love is put upon that child. And that's not even fair to that child because these children can sometimes teach us more about love than anybody else. I guarantee you that. That's true. A lot of work. But at the same time, they can be incredibly loving. Well, imagine for a second that we were in God's eyes, far, far more despicable than that, far more offensive to the eyes of God. And yet he loves us. He puts his love onto us. And so when he says here, beloved, my friends, he's using a word that says, you are what it is that God has called upon me to see you as. I love you because of Christ loving me. Not that, boy, am I attracted because you're the best friend I've ever had. 
We all have had our friends, right? And we love them a lot. But at the same time, um, these are people that we didn't choose, that God chose to be our fellow Christians. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one which I've had from the beginning. The old command is the message you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in light. There is nothing in him to make him stumble. Now, the word there for stumble is the word that is used for when a person falls from the faith. Whoever claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. Now, in John, John, well, uh, the, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says that when we become Christians, that we walk into the light. Now, this is a tough one. Walking into the light means that everything that we are gets exposed. Right? Do you ever remember being in middle school? It's a rough memory. Because that's when these things on your face appeared called pimples. Do you remember that? I remember one time walking around in school with my thumb on my forehead the entire day because I didn't want them to see. <laughs> and you know, it was always better to turn down the light in the bathroom when you looked into the mirror at that time of your life. It's nice that we as Christians can walk into the light because when we do, all of our weaknesses and our failings and all of our sins, when they start becoming apparent, what's so great about it is that we actually can be in the light with other people who will love us in spite of what we see in that mirror. And this is really hard because I'll bet you that few of us would really want to be honest enough to let it be known what it is that's going on inside of this and inside of this. And it's not to say that we don't have the sincerest of intentions, even as Christians, because the Spirit desires and wants to do what is right. But the old Adam is still there. And it's really hard for us to be able to be honest about what that old Adam is saying, thinking, and doing. And sometimes he breaks out like a pimple, like a zit. That's a better word, right? Zit. Big and pussy. I don't want to get too descriptive, but you know, the, you get the point. And then what do we need? Just like you love your kids, in spite of all those weaknesses and those failings, and uh, in spite of all those ugly zits, yeah, that God wants us to love each other in spite of all that. 
You know, the, um, nowadays I, I think that there is a kind of a way that people sometimes deal with um, absolution. Uh, when I was down in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, Phoenix is filled with all kinds of people who sought to get absolution by moving. Moving away from where they were living elsewhere in the world and they thought that if they would go someplace where there'd be all that beautiful sunshine and they would go to Phoenix and they would thought, well, I'm, I'm leaving all of my sins behind me now. Nobody knows what it is that I've done. Nobody knows me anymore. I'll go to a place where I can just wipe the slate clean. I'll look at people's faces and they won't know what it is that I did. They, um, we were up in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Uh, for We have, sometimes have courses that they taught out in Jackson Hole. And the pastor there said that there was actually a, a, something that had been diagnosed as the Jackson Hole Syndrome. People thought that if they moved to Jackson... Have, have you been to Jackson Hole, Wyoming? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the, the most beautiful places on earth. I mean, it, it is incredible. People moved to Jackson Hole because they thought that if they could go someplace where the mountains and the scenery was just really beautiful, that they could forget about the so-called things that were inside here. And they said that when they got there, they got even more depressed, and they oftentimes didn't understand why. Absolution by moving. Yeah, because we live in a world that looks at us and the minute that there is something that we've done or there is something that somebody knows about us or there is something that we have done that is shameful, perhaps to us or maybe even to others, that we can't find a place where we can actually be forgiven and live underneath the umbrella of God's grace. This has got to be that place because this is exactly what we are doing every Sunday we are reaching up for God's forgiveness in order that we might give it to each other. So, John says, you've you got to go into the light. But whoever hates, verse 11, but whoever hates his brothers in darkness and walks around in darkness, he does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. He, this is a, I think these things maybe they used to, as, as we might kind of call it like catechism instruction, that they would, um, that they would do this for, uh, for its memnonic value. They could memorize these, these sayings. And whether this came out of Judaism or whether or not it possibly came out of just the early Christian church, I write to you, look at how, look at how it's structured. I write to you, dear children, and they, the phrase here that he uses in, here is technia, uh, regular old, regular children, not babies, not infants, not young people. These are maybe, you know, like your fourth through seventh grade. I write to you, children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. You would suspect it because he could point to their baptisms. I write to you, fathers, 
because you have known him who is from the beginning. This is, um, uh, the word father is, is, is very all-embracing. It's um, a, a, a patera, uh, this, is a, this is a person who was the source. The, our father in heaven is the source from which all things flow. A father's role, this is uh, becoming a problem nowadays, isn't it? That um, fathers have been defatherized in our culture because the minute that you supposedly are viewed as a person who's the source of something or the head of something, that this therefore means that you are repressive of women and that you're a misogynist and that uh, as a father, you can't have any authority because the minute that you do, you're supposedly repressing other people. Um, in the ancient world, a father was somebody who was a gracious provider. We were, since my mom is here, uh, we watched a few movies. We watched this one with Robert Mitchum, and he was back in the 1940s. He was stranded on some island with a nun. Now, you want to talk about the definition of a word dilemma? <laughs> He's on this island with, and, and he, he falls in love with her. And he says, why do you want to be a nun? You know, you haven't yeah, she hasn't taken quite her final vows. He thinks he might have the last chance. He says, I want to take care of you. And I thought, boy, if that isn't politically incorrect today, right? I want to take care of you. A father, this is what a father does. You've known him from the beginning. I write to you, young men. Why? What is this? What is this? Uh, this young man. He is the. He is the. Uh, he's the guy who is maybe, 16, 17 years of age. Because you have overcome the evil one, temptations. Right? We all know that there's a little something about that certain age, where, you have all your brains in the wrong spot of your body and the temptations are there, not necessarily the wisdom that goes with it, but you, you have overcome the evil one. I'll write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I'll write to you, fathers, now he goes back again, because you have known him who is from the beginning. Words sound very good, doesn't it? That in the beginning... Um, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, wanting to get as far as possible so that I don't have to apologize for only doing two verses, I will continue on. Maybe you could read uh, with me. Let's read through 15 through 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the craving of the sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Now this is uh, this, uh, this phrase, the world, you know, we go back to our story about the pietists, right? Stay away from the world. Live in Jutland. And you'll 
be guaranteed that you won't come across anybody who's too rich and you won't come across anybody who's too worldly, uh, who's too fashionable. Um, it almost makes you want to become a pietist. But he says what? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, now he defines it, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does. You, of course, can see how um, boasting, uh, this is worldly. Um, it's um, um, Garrison Keillor would talk about that. Um, what was that phrase? I, Sylvia, I keep forgetting. What, what did he say about the people out there in New York? They what now? Oh. Yeah, that. Yeah, that that um, that when you are modest, that people out east would believe you. Um, you know, you uh, sometimes when you when you do not boast, people therefore think that you're nothing, right? And so, therefore, it's kind of hard to understate yourself, and uh, because nobody really believes that you're. I mean, in other words, they think that if you are of the world, that you would that you would tell everybody how wonderful you are. Well, as Christians, we always understate ourselves and should, because we know that there is nothing good that comes from our flesh. That Anything that we do that is in, or in any way redounds to God's glory is God's doing in us, not us doing it for ourselves. That I, I always teach my confirmation kids the, the camp song. You know that song? I, I like myself. I think I'm grand. I go to the show just to hold my hand. I put my arms around my waist, and when I get fresh, I slap my face. That was the camp song. I guess it, was, it taught us not to, not to be of the world. The cravings of the sinful man, the lust of his eyes. Now, does this mean that we can't go to movies? Maybe it depends upon the movie, huh? Does, does this mean that, that uh, we can't dress in nice clothing? Does this mean that we can't go to a good restaurant? Well, it all depends. You know, if you're going to Bub's, it's okay. <laughs> we, um, we, um, we went there this last week with my mother, and she did say how nice the soup was. So you, you gotta, gotta, got a compliment there. I got a malt. All right. He says, verse 17, the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. It is not that we can't be in the world, we just can't be of the world. And it's very important for us to make that distinction because we have to be in the world.
We just can't be of the world. Verse 18, dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. This is um, the last hour. The, the, you know, the last hour is from that time that Christ came all the way until the end of time. He could come tomorrow. That would certainly solve our retirement problems, wouldn't it? Healthcare problems. He could come tomorrow, and we don't know whether or not it will be today, whether or not it will be in our lifetime, whether or not it will be a hundred or a thousand years from now, but we do know that we are in the last times. The Bible calls them the end times. And therefore, we have to always be watchful. But he says that these antichrists, now it's plural, um, the antichrist, capital A, little antichrist, capital A, or small a, an antichrist is anybody who tries to undermine that the whole message of the salvation that comes to us by grace through faith in Christ. The big A antichrist, Paul will say, sits in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. In other words, we are to understand that when that big A comes, he's going to come looking like he is uh, Jesus himself or claiming to be uh, as though he, were, he has a holiness that, uh, that makes him into almost like Christ incarnate in the midst of the church. Um, who did the Lutherans feel as though he was the Antichrist? Certainly was in his day. They said it was the, yeah, or the papacy, the office of the Pope. And they felt as though this one who says that we are def he defines how you are saved. You are saved through your obedience to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church by the way in which you lived your life according to their teachings. And grace was something that just gave you a shot in the arm that enabled you to be able to do these works. And then you had to actually work, or work out and gain and earn your own salvation. Luther says that's the big A because he's in the temple, he's in the church. Strangely, he's in the church, meaning he saw the church as being inclusive, actually, of the Roman Catholic Church because it had the marks of the church. It had baptism. It had the Lord's Supper, not always in the same defined way but it had baptism and Lord's Supper. Therefore, that's church, but within that church. Now the small a, those are the guys that also come into our congregations. These are the ones who undermine both the teaching of salvation by grace through faith and also who are unloving and hateful because they do not grasp this thing. They come in, usually, very often, appearing as though they are going to join us and be a part of us. And then eventually what happens is that they get squeezed out because their hatefulness cannot absorb the realities of our own sinfulness that exists in our midst. We're all sinners, and they can't take it. So he says that the Antichrists are here. Now he, has, he gives to us a promise. Look at verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. 
this anointing, verse 20, you have a chrisma. You have, we, we talk about the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. The word Christ in the Old Testament means, was in Hebrew, the Messiah. The Messiah was the anointed one. And it meant that when that oil was put upon you, like when David, when they made David into the king, or they had indicated David, they poured oil over him. And the same was true of the high priest. He had the oil poured over him. It was both symbolic but almost sacramental in the sense that you received the Holy Spirit who was represented by, or that, that oil represented the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, the high priest would be set apart and he would be anointed. The king would be set apart and anointed so that now, when I was watching, I, didn't, I don't just watch, if I tell you that I've watched a movie, would you please not sit there and think that that's all I do? <laughs> watching this, this mini-series called The Crown, uh, and this is about the, the royal family in England and about Elizabeth, who is going to be anointed and let me tell you, the king's queen of England considered their anointing to be extremely significant because they knew that they could not rule without the guidance and the care and the, and the gifts that God would give to a ruler. Now, were they, was they, I mean, when the, when the king of England becomes the head of the church, goes all the way back to Henry VIII, you know, not really. But, from the standpoint of the, certainly the temporalness of it, they saw this king as somebody who needed God's guidance, God's help. I don't know what would have happened if we would have asked our presidents to be anointed. And who would they be anointed by? The church, right? Would Barack Obama have accepted an anointing from the church? I don't think so. I think we'd have to have an extra dose for Donald Trump. Um, but you always have to remember, they're sinners too, and no matter what these people have been in the past, we have to pray, 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 that whatever, whoever steps into that office, that he receives something from God to be able to do what he cannot do on his own. Um, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and so on and so forth. Believe you me, uh, the scriptures speak about demons as having roles within the rule of countries that are opposed to truth. We have to have the angels on our side and we should pray that our presidents might actually appeal to God. But this anointing that he says is now also given to you and me. When we were baptized, we were anointed with the Holy Spirit. And that anointing, when we know, it enables us, enables us to know the truth. Enables us. You know, we, the debate about infant baptism, where does that come from? People make it look as though there has to be a knowledge of the truth 
before there can be or even a, a, con a conscious reflection of knowledge of the truth before one can be baptized. In other words, you're making a decision for God. No, the anointing means that something is being given to you that you don't possess by nature. And that's why when you baptize a child, you are giving that child some, an ability to be able to know things that go vastly beyond your and my understanding. When you bring your kids to church, they might be crying, and you might be in the back going, oh, where's that nursery? But when that word is there, that word is penetrating and speaking to them because they have an anointing from the Holy Spirit. And what preserves the church is that. What preserves us is this anointing. So we have to remember that. And we are bing on that moment. Let's, let me just finish this. We'll just, you have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. There's that word again, the Christos. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who ever, who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So he ends up, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even, say it with me, eternal life. Eternal life. So I, I leave you with this wonderful, amazing unbelievable promise that God is going to, through his son Jesus Christ, who has forgiven us for all our sins and given us the power and the strength to be able to love one another, he is going to give to us and has given to us eternal life. Eternal. Eternal. You know, we say that word age to age, forever, forever and ever. Please what that means is from this age into the next age. This is the eternal age. When you hear those words, forever and ever, amen, forever and ever, amen, what we are not saying is just forever and for a long time, and we'll be there for a heck of a long time. We're saying from this age all the way into the coming age of eternity. This is going to be the case. Okay. Blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with his favor and give you his peace. Amen.